Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for putting us in a place where we are free to worship you. Prepare our hearts to worship you this morning and be with Mitch as he delivers the words of the Lord to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are in Genesis 3. If you want to turn there, second half of Genesis 3. And it's good to have the Word of God. Amen. We love the Bible. We teach the Bible every week. It's uh, our authority for faith and practice. It's inspired. It's infallible and errant. We love the Bible. No matter what it tells us, we believe that it is truth, that it is for us and for our good. So today we're talking about the second half of Genesis 3 as we go through Genesis in our series. And it is about the curse. So last week we talked about the fall and we talked about Jesus his role in the life of the serpent, how he will be the great serpent crusher, hallelujah, right there, that Jesus eventually will be the seed of the woman who comes forth to bruise the head of the serpent, though it will bruise his heel. So we talked about the fall. We talked about the fact that there will be redemption even in the midst of a fall, that there is a serpent, an enemy of us all, but there will be a, a defeat of that serpent by our King Jesus. And from the fall, this week we look at the fact that there is indeed a curse. There is a curse. One thing I think is interesting is that we can all sort of tell there's a curse, right? Even non-believers, even those who do not trust in uh, our Jesus or our Bible, can tell you that not everything is the way it's supposed to be, right? People can tell that like, there's like, even just things as simple as as, as uh, traffic, right? As things as simple as bad weather on uh, a day you had something planned. There's just all these things that kind of add up to us realizing, to us knowing something is off here, right? Something is broken. None of us have ever been to the Garden of Eden. None of us ever lived before Genesis 3. And yet we, though we've never seen it physically, we can tell this world was supposed to be working together. This was all supposed to be inner work. This was all supposed to be at peace. The world, this was supposed to be what the Hebrews call shalom. We can see that there's this way life was supposed to go, but now it's broken. It's off. We can all sort of tell, from, from agnostics to atheists to other religions, everybody agrees this is not how the world is supposed to go. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. We all just kind of instinctively can get that. What's also interesting is that it doesn't seem that there's anything we can do to stop it, right? So we have fought war after war after war, and most of the time, there was at least, not every time, but sometimes at least one good guy trying to stop something bad from happening in that war. That was why they went to war. They were trying to find a way to get the world to be right again. We have elected enough politicians, haven't we, to try to vote and legislate and, and manipulate the world back into shalom, and none of that's worked. We have spent as much money as we can spend trying to fix the world, and all of these things are good things, and some of these things improve the world, but even with our nonprofits and our efforts with money, to throwing money at the curse, trying to feed everybody and house everybody and clothe everybody, as good as all that is, and we do that as followers of Jesus, we can't quite fix the curse. So if you're here today and you feel like, hey, something is broken in me, something's broken around me, there, I feel sort of cursed, you're right. 
You don't just feel cursed. Today we're going to say, hey, you are cursed. There is a curse. And if you're like, hey, no matter how hard I live, no matter how early I wake up, no matter how much money I save, no matter how good I am at work and at my job, no matter how, how high of grades I get, no matter what my GPA is, no matter what girlfriend or boyfriend I have, no matter what relationships I get in life, I still feel cursed. I cannot fix this. Congratulations. You're right. right? We cannot. So then our question today is, why? What do we know about this curse Is there any hope in the midst of this curse? And I'm here to say there is, and it has a lot to do with that old rugged cross that we just sang about. Hallelujah. Why are we cursed? Well, verse 17 tells us in Genesis 3 very simply, why are we cursed? It's Adam. It says, And Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Adam and Eve's story starts in a garden, the garden of God. It was sort of a hilltop garden. Ezekiel tells us it was the mountain of God. In Genesis 2, we see that there's a river kind of flowing down into four other rivers, noting that it was sort of a slope, a hill in the middle of this garden. On this hill were two trees. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were both apparently endowed with the miraculous, the supernatural power from God. And Adam and Eve are given the whole garden, and they are allowed, they're even encouraged to eat from every tree in the garden, which would include the tree of life. And they are forbidden to eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, it seems, would have sealed them in their perfection. It was the tree of life for when one ate from the tree of life, they received eternal And they would be sealed in the state that they were in. And in this case, Adam and Eve would have been sealed into utter perfection. Right? This is before the fall. They would have eaten from the tree of life. They would have lived forever in perfect relationship with one another. The Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. They would have lived in perfect relationship with God. There would be no difficulty or despair or anything of the like. There was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and eating from this tree brings about exactly what you might think, good and evil, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right, shows us that there is still some good. It's good and evil. Humans, now that we have taken of this tree, are still capable of good. Even non-Christians will dig a well for a poor village somewhere who doesn't have access to water. As human beings, we can do good and give people access to food and medical care that they might need just out of the goodness of our heart, or as Santa says, good for goodness sake, right? Now, we would say as Christians, their motives are likely off, and and the motive might even be sin, but in the act, we can all kind of do some good, but here's the kicker is now that we can also do, we can do good, but now we can also do evil and great evil. We We can make each other into slaves, drive-by shootings, genocides, war, hatred, divorce, racism, lust, evil is now part of the game. On this mountain, they're given this choice between two trees, eternal life with God or knowing good and evil. And the serpent comes and he speaks to them sort of like this dealer at a table in Vegas and says, you got a good hand, but flip one more card. Maybe you'll have the best hand. 
right? You're winning a lot, but maybe you can win it all, right? You got life with God, but maybe you could be God or like God or be a God. And it burns inside of them to just see that one more card and they take from the tree that they are not supposed to take from. They listen to the wrong voice and make the wrong decision. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's interesting to me is Yes, it is that simple. They disobeyed. It says right there in the verse of Genesis 3, 17, you hearken to the voice of your wife, ultimately the voice of the serpent. You didn't listen to the voice of God. The Bible says that in Genesis 3 uh, earlier, I think it's verse 8, says that the voice of God walked in the cool of the day. It's a very interesting comment, isn't it? The voice of God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. What does that mean, voice of God walked? Well, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there. But we do know from John chapter 1 that Jesus is the word of God who was in the beginning creating all things. So it might be that this was a picture of the second member of the Trinity who gave them instruction and guidance and that they were to follow Jesus, if you will. But they didn't listen to his voice. They listened to the wrong voice and they made the wrong decision. They ate from the wrong tree. It says in verse 17, you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to. I said, thou shalt not eat of it. Now, I want you to understand this, right? This is how simple it is. I wish I could get up here and wax eloquent and be incredibly philosophical and and intellectual with you, but it comes down to simple disobedience. He doesn't even tell them why not to eat the tree. In our generation, we love the why, right? We have to have the why. Give me the why first, right? Why is it wrong to eat of this tree? God doesn't even really give them all that. Now, sometimes because God is so good and God is so gracious, he does give us the why on occasion. In fact, I'd say many times he gives us the why. Simple example that comes to mind, thou shalt not kill. Why? Well, even the book of Genesis, I believe, chapter 9, for one example, says because people are made in the image of God. Do not mar the image of God. That's why. Many times in his grace, he gives us the why, but here's something that's just notable to me is that we are on the hook to obey once the word is given, not on the hook to obey once we understand why. Does that make sense to you? You're on the hook to obey as soon as the word is given. Not, you are not free to disobey until you get all the concepts behind it. He doesn't even give them the why. And this verse was just, I told you not to, you did it. That simple of a proposition. It was that simple of a problem. This is called disobedience or sin, right? Sin. They did wrong and they disobeyed God. And because of that, there comes this curse. God demands obedience. We disobey. We run from God. We hide from God. We blame each other. The fall comes with the fall comes a curse, a curse we're about to read about. But until we read about it, I want to ask you, you, a question. You, this question. Which tree would you have picked? Let's say you're Adam. You're Eve. You're in the garden. The Garden of Eden. There's the hill. There's the two trees. God's voice walking in the cool of the day. The serpent with his voice slithering towards you. Life eternal with God or a chance at being God or so it seems, to know good and evil, which tree do you pick? Which tree would you pick if the decision was yours? Now, for some of you, you're going to say, well, what does it matter? It's hypothetical, right? I'm not Adam. 
I'm not Eve. I'm not in the garden. I'm not the first guy. I'm not the first lady. I'm not the first person on earth. I've never met a talking snake. I've never seen it. I don't even like fruit. Right? I hear you. But the idea is, you think, hey, it's hypothetical. Why does it matter what I would have done? I, I just submit to you this morning, it may not be as hypothetical as you think. That you might actually find yourself in this life in the exact same position as Adam and Eve with the exact same choice on your hands. So it's something to think about. So why are we cursed? Because Adam and Eve listened to the wrong voice. They disobeyed God, and a curse came from the fall. Well, what is the curse? Let's get some definition, some understanding around it. Definition is this idea that it's a couple things. One, God allows, he allows the consequences of sin to play out. It's one part. Additionally, we do see that God actively places consequences of sin on us. So some of it's passive. He allows the consequences of sin to play out. Right? Our sin comes with its own reactions. Kind of, you reap what you sow. He allows that mechanism at, to be at play in the world. He also places some curse, places some consequence on us. But we need to get a good understanding of what the curse is because a lot of times we see it as an absence of blessing. That God has now just given us a cosmic whooping, right? Like I go into Poe Mill, I talk to people, everybody's got a story about their grandma or their mama, like, oh, if I would have done that, she would have gotten a switch and whooped me on the next year. That's probably why some of those folks are traumatized. But anyway, the idea is that I would have gotten, gotten in trouble, a whooping. And sometimes we think of the curse as that, like God's like just putting us in time out, and now there's nothing good. But the truth is, it's more, uh, there's something, it's, it's a little bit more detailed than that, a little bit more nuanced. Right? There is still the blessings of Genesis 1 and 2. If these blessings of creation weren't necessarily forbidden now. They're actually still at play, but now they are mixed and mingled with the consequences of sin with sorrow. Uh, I think you get, I'll give you an illustration, though, just to make sure. Right? It's, it's, we have life, but now we have the blessing, but now we, it's also it's, it's difficult. It's, it's cursed, so it's both. Like when I uh, was a younger guy, went on some mission trips to Antigua which is in the Caribbean. I went to the poor part, so chill. Um, I was in Antigua, and next to the missionary's house we were staying at, there was a little shop. A lady owned it. She sold, like, snacks and such. And at this shop, um, there was some grass by it. The sun was hot. I don't really actually know what happened, but somehow in the heat of the day, a little brush fire started outside of her shop. And me and the other guy saw, oh, dude, this place is on fire. There's fire out in the yard right next to the missionary's house. So we get buckets. It wasn't a huge fire. I don't want to paint myself as a hero here. But, uh, I mean, close to a hero. I, uh, I got the buckets, ran out. You know, my friends and I were stomping on it, things like that. And we got the fire out. And to thank us, this older lady who owned this shop gave us sodas that she had made. They were in a clear, like, mason jar looking thing. And I was hot, man. It's, it's 100 plus degrees. I just put out a fire. Uh, yeah. And so she hands me the soda in, in this clear jar, and it's cold. And I open it, and I take just the biggest swig you can imagine. Just the deepest. I drank deeply from this jar. And it was cold, and it was hydrating. So there's this blessing. I'm like, ah, oh, thank goodness. But it turns out in Antigua, uh, they drink what is essentially vegetable soda. It is like V8 juice, like vegetable juice and carbonation. And I don't know if you 
you know, if you know me, you probably realize I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the vegetable at all. Juice form is the worst, right? And so here I am, I'm sweating, I'm hot, I'm getting hydrated. There is some good in this, right? It's cold, but then also I am like, whoa, this is terrible, right? I am like, I can't even look this lady in the eye after this. I'm like, I don't want her to know how bad I feel. Like, uh, thank you, Jesus saves, talk to the missionary, I gotta go, right? I, and I go out to the field, and I'm like that, you know, trying to get this flavor out of my mouth. I'm praying to God, I'm confessing sin, like I must be, like I'm sorry for whatever I did, deserve this, and, and you know, it, it's just this, this, this taste, it's tainted, right? And this is what the curse is like. It's like, no, 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 we're blessed to be here. Peter tells us that we have the grace of life, but yet there is this consequence of sin that is mingled with it, sorrow that is mingled with it, so that this life, though good, there's bad. And the blessing, there's curse, and it's tainted, and it's mingled with sorrow that we can't untangle the sorrow from the blessing now on this side of heaven. We see this in the scriptures, this nuance. When we get to the specifics, there's the curse of the woman. Verse 16, he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Your desire will be to your husband, but he will rule over you. He shall rule over thee. Okay, so you see the blessing of creation. When she was created, the, the, the promise, the command, if you, the, the, the cultural mandate came to her. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You'll be the mother of children. And she still gets to be the mother of children. That's a blessing. But yet now it is tangled in with physical pain because of the curse and with spiritual pain. Now your kids not only bless you, but they disappoint you and they, they disobey you like you've disobeyed me. And we'll see this next time we talk after Easter when we get back into Genesis, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother, first sibling rivalry. It ended bad. And we can imagine what that did to the heart of Eve. Outer turmoil, physical pain and childbearing, inner turmoil and raising children. But so she got this blessing, but with this blessing, it's tainted with some sorrow. We see this with her husband. All she knows up to this point was she was blessed. She was the help me. He was going to cleave to her. They were made for each other. And she still has this, right? She still has the husband. She's still in this role in humanity. However, her desires are going to go unmet, that she's going to experience a husband who, instead of cleaving to her, will rule over her. When she's trying to get the house in order, he's going to think he knows better and, and, and be domineering in an inappropriate way. And we see this all throughout the book of Genesis. This curse is mentioned handfuls of time as the men, even the, the men of God at this time, in their sin, treat women like property. And it's wrong. It's sin. It's wicked. We've got to call it out. But this happens throughout human history in all kinds of cultures all over the place. Because they have the power, because they have the strength, men will, men will rule over in an inappropriate and domineering and terrible way. And so now she's got this blessing of being a wife, but it's never quite right that he's never enough, that he's never what she's really looking for, that he's never, like the, the compatibility is off and that there's something missing Right? So there's this blessing, but it's mingled with this source of sorrow. So she's glad to be a mom and a wife, but at the same time, being a mom and a wife is what causes her exhaustion and, and her feeling of being misunderstood and feeling like she's not enough and this source of pain. So my sisters in Christ, if you're here and you're like, I'm blessed to be 
in a family, I'm blessed to have my role, but yet at the same time, it's never quite right as if it's cursed and it is frustrating and it is exhausting at the same time. Congratulations, you're normal. That is our life now in a fallen world. We see this as well with the man, the curse of the man. Verse 17, we've read, but let's hit it again. Adam, as you hearken to the voice of your wife, right? You were not leading, you were passive. You ate the tree, the wrong tree, I commanded thee not to say. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it'll bring forth to you. You'll eat of the herb of the field. So he's got this blessing of creation still. Genesis 1 and 2, that blessing is still intact. He put man in the garden to dress it and to keep it. Take dominion over it. It was supposed to be a thrill, this idea of work. I've created you to create. I have formed you to form. I built you, Adam, to build. You go be like me and make this place even more beautiful and, and manage it and name the animals and categorize them and just and, and inhabit this place and make it great. We all can sense that time to time, not often, but time to time we see that thrill of work where something at work goes well and a product sells or a team completes a, a task and we're like, yes, it's a thrill. But now this blessing of work is tainted with sorrow. It's mingled with all this difficulty. The ground is working against him. So now work is very frustrating and is difficult, fiercely discouraging, overwhelming. Perhaps some of you have been there. You started a company and it's a thrill because it grew, but now you're also terrified of it because it's grown. It's overwhelming. They got all these employees and clients and people emailing you and you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I wanted the money. I didn't want this headache. What is going on? Well, it's the curse, right? I remember uh, in my line of work, I was a youth pastor and I was on staff for a year and when I was going in for my annual review and I uh, thought I was getting a raise. Um, it turns out, I don't think they do that for youth pastors, but um, I was going in, I thought everything was great. Turns out a lot of the staff, the church was having problems, giving down, not just me, but multiple staff people getting laid off. And I was right when I was about to get engaged and married, and a paycheck kind of helps in that situation. And I had a friend who got laid off as well at that exact same time at the church. He was over the sound and the music and all this. And he got laid off and he was about to have a baby girl. And he has this baby girl that comes into the world. And yet he doesn't have a paycheck coming in. And he feels like a failure because work has failed him. And it's work he wanted to do. And he signed up for this ministry. He wanted the blessing of this. And he got it for some time. But then it ended. There was this curse as well. If you're here, brothers in Christ, and you love the fact in one sense that you get to work and you are blessed to have a job, but in the same sense, you feel cursed at work that it never goes quite right. Congratulations. You're normal. This is life in a fallen world. There's also this curse on all of us, this curse on humanity. It gets a little worse before it gets better. Verse 19, it says, In the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till thou return to the ground. You were taken out of it, right? Out of dust wast thou taken. Dust thou art, dust thou shalt return. This is the crescendo of the curse. This is to be read with sadness, soberness. This is, this is to be read with a tear. This is, this is hard words from the Lord. This rips our heart out. This is brutal, right? The rest of the curse beats us up, but this is the final blow. You're going to die. 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, one man, sin entered in the world, death by sin. So death passed to all men, for all have sinned. This is proof that God shows no partiality. He said he didn't. And this is proof. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, white, black, upper class, middle class, lower class, skipping class, class clown, all of it. Y'all die. 100%. Stats are in. One for one. Everyone who's got a birthday gets a funeral. Everybody. This is the curse. I mean, we have this blessing. We get life. I mean, there is a great blessing. I mean, you get to live. You get to see what God is and what God made. You get to look around you and glorify a God above you. You get to know a existence. You get a life, but yet there's a curse that's mingled with it because it's short. It can be taken any time. Additionally, it's a blessing. Your loved ones get life, and you get life with them. But their lives can be taken. I remember feeling this when I got married. I was so excited to be married. I love being married. I love Joanna with all my heart. We're coming up on eight years of marriage in April, April uh, 5th. All right, so for the record, I did remember that. That was April 5th. <laughs> Correct. And I love her. And I remember being married. I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. I can't even believe this happened, right? Uh, cessationists explain this one because this is from the Holy Ghost. This is a miracle, right? This is still for today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, because look at this miracle. Um, that's a joke. That's a Bible college joke. You probably don't get it. Anyway, point is, it was a miracle. I was glad, right? And in the first two or three weeks, I'm like, oh, now I can lose a wife. That came over me. I was like, whoa, whoa, I never had that potential. I got a wife. We have life together, and now we can also lose life together. Same with my kids. I remember holding my kids in the hospital. I'm so excited for their life. I'm crying. I'm, I'm emotional as all get out. I'm calling my kids. I'm talking to them. Everything's going great. And then they go about year one, maybe year two. I can't remember when it is, but that phase where they put everything in their mouth. Whatever they find, they put it in there. They test it by the mouth. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, now I can, I realize now I can lose a kid. Some of you have been through some of this. It's very difficult, and I sympathize, and I'm sorry. It's part of the curse. I get a lot of good relationships, but that also means I'm going to lose some relationships. Why? Because I'm normal. I'm normal. And this is life in a fallen world. And up to this point, man, does this read like Ecclesiastes. Right, right here, we're like, whoa, this is sad. Right? It's sombering, it's sobering, and it is supposed to be. The curse is supposed to be sad, sombering and sobering, because sin is sad, sombering and sobering. We're supposed to read the curse and hate our sin. We're supposed to read the curse and long for a life, not just without the curse, but without the sin that caused the curse. We're supposed to read about the curse and feel so overwhelmed that we turn from the curse to the God of comfort. And the good news is that the rest of the chapter, 20 through 24, tells us that is absolutely an option. Is there hope for the curse? Yeah. 
There's hope for the cursed. We see it in the rest of the text. It takes a very interesting turn. It's like there's this burst of wrath followed by uh, almost a hug of comfort in the text. It's sort of like um, my dad with his punishments. My dad's punishments always started really black and white, by the book, this is going to be bad. And then as time went on, there was alleviation. I've done a lot of stupid things. One of the dumbest things I've done in high school, my friend and I walking down the hallway, we were not, you know, it's not like we were, we were uh, uh, up to no good. And we're thinking of things that we could do, and we saw this true story, and this is dumb, it's dumb. So in the glass, in the concrete wall, a fire extinguisher, I was like, have you ever sprayed one of those? I haven't. He was like, no, I haven't, I wonder what that looks like. I'm like, let's find out. So true story, we stole the fire extinguisher, put it in his car after school, we drove around his car spraying all this white stuff out in the air and thought, oh, it's hilarious. So the next day, we did it again. We took another one, and after school, we went to some parking lot, Psh, that's hilarious, right? Turns out that's called stealing. Generally looked down on in Christian school. And uh, yeah, it's also a crime because I guess you're kind of putting kids in harm's way if there is a fire. So I got suspended. And when I got suspended, dad was like, hey, you get a month, you're grounded for a month. And the first thing, first phase, phase one, you're only in your room. And this is before you were begging to be in your room. Okay, this is before Wi-Fi. Right? I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. Okay, there's no PlayStation, no TV. This is when your room was like kind of had that prison vibe to it. Just sleep in here and get me out. Right? And, and that was it. And so he's like, you're in your room. But then after about a week, and I was sorry for what I'd done because that was dumb. And I didn't even think it was that funny and whatever. But after about a week, like, okay, you can go downstairs. So now I can go to the PlayStation, the computer, whatever. Now another week, you know, okay, you know, you can go back and forth to work. And there was alleviation because, yes, there was seriousness to what I had done, but there was love for my father. And it's the same thing with God. He's a God of wrath, and simultaneously, he's a God of love. And he's a God of wrath towards sin, but simultaneously, he's a God of great love for sinners. And so there is this curse, and we deserve it. You need to know that. You deserve the curse. However, there is this great love that we don't deserve, and there is alleviation from the curse. You see this start to turn in verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she's the mother of all the living. That is odd. Verse before, right? You're going to return to dust. You're going to die. Now verse 20, there's this sharp turn of hope. It's Adam's hope. He says, but we're also going to live. So what is going on? Well, perhaps Adam was cursed, but he wasn't cursed without hope. Maybe we're cursed, but we can be cursed without with, we can be cursed and still have hope, right? Perhaps Adam believed God. After all, before the curse starts, he tells them that Eve will bear a seed, a son who has a son who has a son, and eventually through her bloodline will come a serpent-crushing king who will crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. And maybe he believes that that really will happen. And maybe we can believe God in the midst of the curse. Adam believed now that sin is bad, but God is good. That there is wrath, but there is also this great love. Maybe we can believe the same thing. In fact, we can because look at what God does next. He's going to give them grace through the curse, and he's going to give them salvation from the curse. And it's a grace and a salvation that will point us to grace and salvation found in Jesus. This is one of our first glimpses of Jesus. 
grace for the cursed. Verse 21, as this hope, as this turn of hope in the text takes place, this sort of, this sort of alleviation from the curse takes place, it says this in verse 21, and unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. Remember back in verse 7, they tried to make coats themselves. They tried to cover their own sin. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and it wasn't enough. And it's a good reminder for us that we can't cover our sin. Right? Some of you are still trying to keep score, and God has deleted the scoreboard at the cross. Like You're still like, oh, I did something bad. Let me do 10 good things, and I'll be good with God again. That is religion, and it doesn't work. That's not how he operates. Right? Just like if you get pulled over, and the cop sees in the dashboard a check for charity, and in the back seat you got groceries going to the poor, and there's a car seat, and you've adopted a kid out of poverty. And then he looks in the trunk, and there's cocaine. Right? We're all a mixed bag, right? We all got a little good, a little bad. But, right, he sees cocaine. He's not going to be like, well, you got three good things, so move along as you were. No, you're gone, right? Because that's not how sin works. That's not how justice works. And so they can't cover themselves. We can't cover ourselves with our religion and with our good work, but God covers them. He covers their sin for them, and it requires a sacrifice, if you notice this. He doesn't, doesn't cover them with the wool of an animal, with the skin of an animal. This is our first glimpse of what is called atonement, or a New Testament word for it is propitiation. And atonement and propitiation are these two facts kind of side by side, that God has to cover sin in his wrath. Someone, something will absorb his wrath, but God in his grace says it doesn't have to be the sinner. There can be a substitute for the sinner. Now that substitute has to be innocent and it can't deserve any wrath of its own. And we see here, pointing to other things going on that are about to come up in the Old Testament, that an animal can be that instant innocent substitute for crime. They have to take these animals to the altar over and over and over because they're, they're not ultimate, but they're enough momentarily. But they have to be perfect, these animals. The Bible says they have to be without blemish, and without spot. And we know that these animal sacrifices of the Old Testament that eventually get codified in the book of Leviticus, they foreshadow someone, and that is Jesus. Jesus lives under the curse, but yet he doesn't deserve the curse. Jesus doesn't earn the wrath of God. He is innocent, like a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Jesus passed the test that Adam and Eve failed. The test of the two trees, he, he passed with flying colors. In fact, if you look at the chapter, Matthew 4, where he is tempted by the serpent, Jesus is directly tempted by Satan. The third temptation looks a lot like the garden temptation. Verse 8 of that chapter says, The devil taketh him to exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said, All these things I'll give to you if you fall and worship me. It's a very similar root cause of sin that was going on in Adam and Eve's heart. This idea that, hey, you're the son of God, but maybe you could be like better, right? Maybe you could, maybe, hey, you're the savior of mankind, but maybe you can rule mankind and all these kingdoms like Herod and get glory now rather than be exalted at the end of time when you return. Maybe there's some better plan here. Roll the dice, pick one more card. Just see one more card. 
Same type of temptation, but Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Him only shalt thou serve. And the devil leaveth him. He beats the temptation. He defeats the serpent in his own temptation. He, he succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. He picks, he listens to the right voice, the word of God, and he picks the right tree. We see that with his perfect life, Jesus reverses the curse at every turn. He helps women who feel their side of the curse with issues with their family, like, but not only, but like the woman caught in adultery or the one with the five husbands. He helps men who feel their side of the curse with fishermen who can't catch anything all night and tax collectors controlled by their greed. He reverses the curse on humanity of death and he raises Lazarus from the grave. Then... He goes to the cross to absorb the full brunt of the curse. He becomes the king of the curse. Remember, part of the curse was that out of the ground would grow thorns and thistles. And as they crucified Jesus, what did they crown him with? Thorns and thistles. He wears the curse like a crown. He is the king of the curse, the cursed king. And as a sinless sacrifice... He makes atonement for our sins and covers us in the midst of our curse. This means that we are righteous before God because of Jesus, that he covers us in his good works, in his work, so that God now talks with us, walks with us, and treats us as if we're without blemish and without spot. Now, there's no reason for us to run from God when we hear his voice or hide from God. Even though we still sin, we confess and he forgives and we, we, we might receive some discipline, but it's from Abba Father, the loving guide who is just getting us on the right path again. It's very interesting, isn't it? Oddly, we see that the curse is really this idea that blessing is now mingled with sorrow But we also see that through Jesus, our sorrow is now mingled with blessing. This idea that we are sorry, we're sinners, but there's this blessing of knowing that someone out there would be the propitiation for our sins. Hallelujah. This is the good news. There is a leap the curse in Jesus. He gives us grace through it by his own blood. He covers our sins so that now we have no shame before God. Even as we continue to struggle through this life. He's with us. And then there's salvation from the curse. Verse 22 is just fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating. I don't even know what to tell you about this. It's just very interesting. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it seems that God is having a conversation with himself amongst the Trinity, and that a thought comes to him that's just so horrible, it stops him mid-sentence. That's what it seems like is happening. Verse 22, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, right, the Trinity, and he knows good and evil. And now, and here's the sentence, like it just stops in its tracks. Lest he put forth his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think the backdrop is, okay, so man is able to make the wrong decision. They know good, now they know evil, right? So they're able to sin. And I just told him he's going to return to the dust. He's going to be afraid of dying, right? So in effort to preserve his life, one day he might try to take from the tree of life and it'll give him eternal life only in the curse. 
He will live under the curse forever and ever. What thought is so painful to God that it stops in mid-sentence? This thought, the idea of you living under this curse forever and ever. The idea of you living in sin and under the consequences of sin for all eternity. He cannot bear the thought. That's a God of love. I mean, he has saved us from so much. I mean, think about, think about what would have happened if we would have taken the tree of life after our sin. I mean, just think about the lighter parts of the curse, if you will. Not that there is a light part, but like what's something that comes from the curse that, like, a uh, uh, toothache. Toothache. I don't care how big, strong, how often you work out, you get a toothache. We are all the same. We are miserable children. Right? Cannot stand it wailing and weeping. Could you imagine you get a toothache and it lasts for 2,000 years because you ate from the tree of life. Now you got it for 100,000 years. Or maybe you finally get to be alive. You're alive forever. So, oh good, they invented dentists. Now you got to go every six months for a million years. Seriously. Root canal. Like 200,000 of them. Because you live forever. And that's just the, the lighter side of the curse. Some of you know the dark side of the curse, the harder parts of the curse. I mean, some of you have struggled with being an alcoholic. Could you imagine having to struggle with being an alcoholic for 100,000 years? Some of you know the temptation of addiction and how insane that feels. Could you imagine having to live like that for a million years? God can't imagine it. He loves you. He likes you too much to let it happen. So he bars them from the Garden of Eden. He is a God of wrath, but man, does he prefer mercy. And this is an act of mercy. Verse 23 and 24, he says, Therefore the Lord God sent them forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence they came. And it says in verse 24, He drove out the man, and he placed him on the east side of the Garden Eden of Eden, cherubims or angels, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Right? He bars them from the garden in the tree of life that they can't live forever. Now, was this an exile? Yes. Was this punishment for sin? Yes. But this is also an act of salvation. This is also mercy. He is barring Adam and Eve from living under an eternal curse. Here's just some good news for you. The curse is temporary because of God. Hallelujah. Amen. But there is some sadness. Because now it's like, hey, well, I'm sure Adam and Eve, as they're walking out of the garden, they're looking back at that tree of life getting smaller and smaller as they're walking east. And the gates are closing and a flaming sword is coming down from heaven and an angel is standing there and they know there's no way around. There's no way back to that garden, to what we had in Genesis 1 and 2. There's no way back to that decision. I can't go back and make the right decision. I can't go back to the garden in perfection with God in the voice of the cool of the day. And I can't go back until the ground there where it was great. And I can't go back and pick the tree of life. Unless another tree of life pops up. And in the middle of the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is another tree of life. And it is a bloody tree. And a man is hanging on this tree 
But it's a second chance that if you eat from this tree, you again can have life in the presence of God forever and ever. The backstory is in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 22 and 23. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's hung on a tree, take the body off. It shall not remain there all night, but you shall bury him the same day for cursed is a man hung on a tree. Moses is saying, there are some of these laws we're writing down that are punishable by death. Should you break them? One of the ways corporal punishment can, ha- can be carried out is hanging you on a tree, but because you are unclean and defiled, we take you down, you're dead anyway, we take you down from the tree because you're defiled, you're cursed by God. Thousands of years after Deuteronomy is written, Jesus is led up on a hill and he is hung on a tree. And on a cross, he dies the death of a criminal, but he was not a criminal. So what is going on? Well, Paul clears it up for us in Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus takes the curse for us and he gives us a new tree of life that anyone can eat from. Jesus said himself, sort of metaphorically, sort of not, in John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Or as Jesus simply said to the thief on the cross beside him, today you'll be with me in paradise, that garden of God. So what's interesting is actually today, you have the same decision as Adam and Eve. It is not so hypothetical that you can still choose from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or you can eat all you want from the tree of life. Which will you choose? Will you choose the tree of sin, the tree of the curse, or the tree of life. This bloody tree of life, this new tree of life, gives us eternal life. And in fact, it only gives us eternal life later. It starts now. That Interestingly, it sort of starts to make us into a tree of life. Like it drops seeds and we're the new vegetation that comes forth. We're the, you and me, we're as the church, this new garden of Eden. And we're like these miniature trees of life This is what Jesus meant in John 15 when he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches and you're going to bear much fruit. You could be the tree of life for all those around you suffering under the curse. We become a tree of life when we use encouraging words. Proverbs 15, 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in spirit. We become a tree of life for others by living a life of wisdom, God's wisdom. Proverbs 3.18, wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast will be called blessed. We become a tree of life by sharing our faith. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Turn to Revelation 22. Turn to Revelation 22. Through encouragement, through witnessing, sharing our faith, through good works, not that we do to earn salvation, but that we do because of our salvation and wisdom, we become a new garden of Eden, the church, and we sort of prop up the tree of life that others might eat of it. 
And I know a lot of this up to this point has been super metaphorical and poetic, right? Like we're not actually, like you look around, it's like, well, there's wood pews, but we're not actually trees. And Jesus' cross is, what you know, his death on that, that was a substitutionary atonement, but we don't actually have that physical wooden beam. And so some of this is really in the spiritual realm. But what's interesting is that all of this is actually leading to a very physical future, like real time and space reality. And we see this in this beautiful text we'll end with, Revelation 22. I mean, it's unbelievable that we actually do get back to the garden, that we actually do get back to the tree of life, and we can eat all the time, as much as we want, and live forever with God without a curse. Revelation 22.1, speaking of eternal life, John writes, he showed me a pure river water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, on either side of that river, was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And man, is this good news. Verse 3, I cannot read this enthusiastically enough. There shall be no more curse. Amen. Amen. There should be no more curse. The throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will serve them, and they will see his face. So is there any hope in the midst of the curse? Oh, we got nothing but hope. There's bad news, but let me just tell you, there's infinitely greater good news. The curse is great, but Christ is greater. That the tree of life, we were barred from it, but there's a new tree of life that you could take from now and a tree of life in your future that you will take from forever. The choice is ours. We are Adam and Eve. We are in this scenario. There are two choices. There is sin or salvation. There is the serpent or God. There is the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. Choose life. Eat all you can from the tree of life. Eat initially for salvation, then go back to the tree through the word and through prayer and through the church over and over. And don't look at it so much just as spiritual disciplines, but you literally feeding off of the tree of life that you might live closely with God, closer to the blessing side of this 70-year vapor we have and further and further and further from the curse it's mingled with. There's good news. Jesus defeated the curse. He ended it, and he alleviates it, gives us grace through it, and salvation from it. Praise Jesus. There's a tree of life. Jesus, as we sing, we pray that you would lift our hearts up in this hope that we would sing to you with all our heart, Lord, as even worshiping you is a part of life that is blessed. And Lord, we pray that our minds will be clear, that our hearts will be full, and that we'd be assured that you like us, you love us, and that you've given us great grace. Through this curse, you're with us. You took the worst of the curse that we might be cursed no more one day, and we believe you, and we trust you, and we eat from this tree of life now. In Jesus' name, amen.